the very first verse. And I love that it, it, it kind of begins. And kind of begins and ends, we have these, these kind of bookends. If you read the first and last verse of this passage, we kind of have these bookends as reminders of the psalm. But right out of the gates, Asaph writes and, and proclaims, God is good. God is good. Truly, God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. Here's what I would say and, and, and encourage us with this morning. Whatever we're walking in with, whatever we're carrying, as, whatever is weighing on our hearts, whatever is burdening us, whatever is causing a, a heaviness upon us, before Asaph even describes any of the struggle, he just comes out of the gate and says, let's, let's just be reminded of what is true here. Very baseline, very simple, but yet one of the most difficult things to truly believe and walk in. You've heard me say before, uh, Tim Chester writes in uh, his book, You Can Change, that there are truths that the, the head knows um, and there's things that the heart believes. And sometimes there's a gap between what the head knows and what the heart believes. Functionally, we say, yes, I believe God to be good. But in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of situations, we wrestle to believe God is good in that moment. We wrestle to, to, to see how God is at work. How could this be bringing about some good? And he says that the ability for us to be able to close the gap between what the head knows and what the heart believes is the process of sanctification. That as we close that gap, we become more and more like Jesus. That, that what we believe in our head more aligns with the truth that we functionally walk in. And so out of the gates, I, I would just say whatever we're walking in this morning the pain that we're feeling, the grief, the sadness, the hurt, we can rest in knowing that at a, at a very base level, God is good. God is good. And it's important to be reminded of that often. The world around us, it doesn't look good. The circumstances, the situations, the relational conflict, it doesn't look good. But in the midst of that, God is good. And what's interesting is Asaph is, is going to go on this journey. We're going to see the real struggle of his heart moving from a place of somebody who has great head knowledge to know God to be good. Again, he has been appointed as the worship leader of Israel. Okay, So he's performing temple worship. This is who this guy is. He's the worship leader of worship leaders. And, and he's, he's been given this role and yet we see the real honest struggle of his heart. It goes on in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He's at a place where he, he almost tripped. He, he's at a place where, where he, he, he goes, Man, I was close to falling into some deep sin. My, feet, my, my, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of of the wicked. And here's what I would say to us this morning. When we fail to believe that God is good, we start looking for good elsewhere. And this is, this is where Asaph really, really begins to, to journey. And what we're going to see in the next probably 10 to 12 verses is Asaph is beginning to see and look for good in other things. When we, when we fail to see God as good, we begin to look for good elsewhere. And so he's going to say, they have it so good. 
He's going to say they look so good, right? He's like, their bodies are fat and sleek. Like this was a compliment. He says, uh, their eyes are swollen out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. I mean, these guys are living. They have it so good. They look so good. And they're not even having to be good. Like they're getting to, to be as evil and do as many things uh, against the living God as they, they so desire. And, and whatever their hearts desire, they're, they're given and, and they're prospering in the midst of it. And so here Asaph looks upon that. He recognizes that. He sees that. And when we fail to see God as good, we begin to look out around us and we go, man, look at all the good around us. Look at all the good. Look at all the things that they're being privileged by. Look at all the things that they're receiving, the praise, the prosperity. And it seems like they're flourishing. And what Asaph is going to describe is, is an inward struggle. And he's going to voice this over many verses here of just kind of wrestling through this inward struggle of just contemplating the doubts and questions that he has as he looks upon all of these people who are prosperous, but yet not following the Lord, who are, who are prospering, but giving into evil things. And they're leading him to a place of, of doubt. They're leading him to a place of questioning. And what's interesting is we see the, the kind of full picture, and we kind of see this, this psalm begin to swing, that it's actually that through the wrestling of these doubts and through the wrestling of these questions and through contemplating hard things and the inward struggle, that it actually leads him to a greater trust and, and, and picture of, of loving the Lord and how close the Lord is. And doubts have a way of doing that, right? Doubts have a way of drawing us closer to him. And so I want you to hear his struggle. They're not in trouble. He's seeing that they're prosperous. They're they're not stricken, verse 5, like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. They're like, they have it all together. Their eyes swell out. Their hearts overflow with follies. They, They seem to be full of life. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault. And they say, how can God know? It seems like they get away with it. And many of you, maybe you grew up with an older brother or sister that that older brother or sister was the perfect child. Maybe it was the the younger brother. I, I think about that in our home, Jackson my youngest seems to be the one that is uh, the one who never gets in trouble, right? Like he, he never does anything wrong. And the older Lila Kate and Jet look upon him and they're, they're like, they look at, at him with contempt in their eyes because they're like, how in the world? Like we know this guy, we know his heart, we know the wrongdoing that he does. And, and yet mom and dad, like you still praise him. And this is kind of where Asaph is. He's looking at this and going, you know, these guys are totally, totally against the Lord, but yet it seems as if uh, they, they, they're getting away scotch-free. And so he, he wrestles. He doubts. Tim Keller says this about doubt. 
says, doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. Again, kind of going back to that Tim Chester description of like what the head knows, what the heart believes. It's we, we begin to experience things around us that maybe we've questioned in our mind, that, that we've wrestled with over time, and then we see the experiences around us, and they seem to align. And that's when doubts enter in. And we begin to question. And here's what I would say, this inward struggle, the things that, that we are wrestling with, the Psalms teach us that it's okay to bring those things to the Lord. That it's okay to bring the deepest, darkest, most, most difficult struggles of our life to the Lord and allow Him to speak to them. Again, this is the worship leader of Israel bringing these questions, bringing these doubts. And what's interesting, and I, and I hope you see, like even in verse 21 through 22, uh, Asaph describes himself as someone who was embittered. He was like a beast toward the Lord. And here's what, what a great picture of like a healthy leader is a repentant leader. It's not a perfect leader. It's someone who's wrestling with the reality and the struggles of life and trying to make sense of it. And this is the inward struggle that Asaph begins to wrestle with. And then it moves to verse 13 where it seems like faith is pointless. Pointless faith. He questions the value of holiness in this verse. In verse 13, after he's described all of this looking upon these these people who do evil, but yet they seem to be full, they seem to be full of life, they seem to be prospering. And he begins to question his own life and says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This is ultimately Asaph saying here, what does it profit me? What, what, what gain do, do, I, do I have? What, what do I acquire by living in obedience to the Lord? Surely the good life that I've lived, surely the things that I've done, surely uh, the, the, the way in which I've served the Lord, surely God would, would take notice of that. Surely God would offer some reward for that. Surely God would give some privilege towards me in light of that. And what he ultimately comes to the point of asking, if obedience doesn't lead to these things, and he's watching that evil doing leads to these things, why be obedient? And maybe that's a question we've wrestled with. Why pursue holy living? Why pursue righteousness? Why live in such a way uh, to be obedient when we feel like obedience doesn't earn us the life that we see described here. I think Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a leader in the Reformation, uh, describes it for us well. And he says this, The soul that loves God seeks no other reward than that God whom it loves. Were the soul to demand anything else, then it would certainly love that other thing, and not God. And here's how I would describe this to you, okay? Uh, very few people know this, but I have mentioned this before, that not only did I play golf in college, and that was scholarship, like how I pursued to go to school, uh, I, cheer, I did cheerleading, okay? Now, I didn't 
love cheerleading. I loved what cheerleading gave me. What did it give me? It gave me money to go to school, right? I, it gave me an opportunity to work out in the, the gym that all the other athletes were using and gave me access to this gym. I didn't love cheerleading. In fact, there came a point where when I received a scholarship, when I received the very thing I was actually going after, I stepped away from cheerleading. It wasn't that cheerleading was the thing I was after. In some ways, this is, this is similar to our, our, our walk with the Lord in the sense of when we're obedient to God. Is it because we're seeking to get more of Him? Or are we seeking to get rewards from Him? Are we seeking to get stuff from God? Are we seeking to get God Himself? And that's the wrestle and that's the tension. And I think that's where Asaph begins to, to wrestle with this. And, and it shows that our desire for the things of God is that we actually love the stuff of God more than God. Some of you, you, you love running, right? And you're like, I love running for, for what I gain from running. It makes me feel good, right? And so like, I, I want to run. It's not that you enjoy running. Some of you just enjoy running. Some of you go out and you're like, the wind going through my hair, I don't experience that. But it's like, you know, just feeling like a gazelle running down the streets. It, it's so life-giving. And you describe this idea of running and you're like, I just love running. That's not me, right? That's, that's not how I would describe running. I, I run to eat, right? Like I, I run to be able, for the things that it gains and, and, and I'm rewarded in the sense of being able to do that. And what we see in this passage is uh, it's, it's not about what we can get from God, but getting more of God. We're obedient in that wrestle and that tension of going, what, what else do I gain? And we don't see God as enough. And that's where I would say Asaph begins to, and I, I love the wrestle, I love the tension, because uh, how many of our common worship songs that we sing today have so much uh, darkness and wrestling and the tension of heart, Right? And, and here we just have this, this honest uh, person of just wanting to step away, wanting to not pursue holy living, wanting, but in the end, he goes, I don't want to forfeit the closeness and nearness of God. And I think that's where Asaph begins to point us. I believe that's where Asaph begins to direct our hearts, that, that he begins to, to, to give us a vision that we forfeit the nearness of God, that we forfeit closeness, that we're not trying to get stuff. We just want to be near Him. We just want to experience Him. In obedience, we get God and experience His nearness. His nearness. And then it leads to gospel sanity or gospel clarity. It says in verse 16, when, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Have you ever, in, in your wrestling and tension and life of just kind of wrestling through the things of this, it's like, how do I make sense of this? And he said, that was the experience until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then... I discerned therein. So ultimately, he, he gets a vision. 
He gets clarity. He gets discernment. When he walks into the sanctuary, there's clarity. And I would just ask this morning, has the sanctuary of God been a place of clarity for you? Has the sanctuary of God been a place of just reminding you of what is true? I think often we, we get to come together as the body of Christ once a week, uh, that this place is a sanctuary. This isn't the only sanctuary. Because of the work of Jesus, the, the veil was torn. We have access to God. We, we have 24-7 access to the sanctuary of God that we get to come and meet with him and be before him and bring our struggles, our doubts, our questions. But we have this time set aside every week to come and be reminded that maybe the, we, we have a dump load truck of, of questions and doubts and wrestle and lies that the enemy has placed upon us and we get to come together on a Sunday and be reminded of what is true. That the sanctuary of God becomes a place of clarity. That the sanctuary of God becomes a place where things begin to make sense, where things are drawn back into focus. When he says in verse 18, he gets a vision for what happens. And it's like a long game, right? Like in the immediate, like in, in the instant gratification kind of world that we live in, we're, we all kind of sense uh, this idea of kind of, I want to live however I want. I want to do whatever I want. And it seems like people who live in that way, they begin to prosper. But coming into the sanctuary, it gives him clarity and says, truly, you've set them in slippery places. They're going to slip. They're going to fall. You make them fall to run. They're going to be destroyed. How are they destroyed in a moment? They're going to be swept away, swept away by terrors. And like a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's like, it's gone. And we have this warning. We have this, this picture of going that those who pursue to live in disobedience towards the Lord that there's everlasting consequences. Stay the course. Even for Asaph to be able to begin to write in verse 21 and 22 that he sees even how is the own wickedness of his heart, right? That he was, a, he was embittered, he's pricked in heart, he was brutish and ignorant, he was like a beast towards the Lord. And that's the beauty of this psalm, that even in the midst of great brokenness, and even in the midst of, we read this passage of people who live foolishly, and I don't know if, if, if you kind of wrestle and you read through this passage, and you're like, yeah, like, how in the world do they prosper? And how in the world, you know, and, and I, and, and maybe we don't relate with them, but I can tell you that my heart actually relates more with some of the wickedness of this passage and some of the brokenness of this passage and how good, such good news it is to me to be reminded of it, the kind of gospel clarity and gospel focus that this passage ends in. Because so many of us, we, we look at the, the, the evil works of our heart and the evilness of our heart. And we're like, how in the world could such a holy God, such a good God love me. And here Asaph, he, he begins to, he comes into the sanctuary, he has this gospel clarity. 
He wrestles with God. He wrestles with these, these doubts and questions. And he comes to a point where he says, nevertheless, I'm continually, I'm with you. You hold me. You guide me. You receive me. And it's just such good news of what Jesus comes to bring. My question to you is, have you experienced that type of gospel clarity? That you move to a, you're moved to a place of worship that gives you proper perspective of how the universe is working. That you read this passage and, and you're reminded of the nearness of God in the midst of brokenness that we experience. I want to read this last 23 through the end of this passage to us. And I want you to see that this is, this is a journey that we have to take often in the Christian life. That we know that we know that we know and our heads believe that God is good. But yet we struggle. And we wrestle. And we've lived foolishly and we've walked foolishly. And we've given over our life to lies and brokenness. We've been deceived. And yet we come back to the sanctuary and we have clarity. And we're reminded of the goodness of God to us, for us, with us. And it's in that moment that everything is brought back into proper perspective. And then we struggle again. And we wrestle again. And it may be that our feet don't almost slip, but they do. And we slip and we fall. And we give into temptation. We give into brokenness. We feel grief. We feel shame. We feel pain. Until we come into the sanctuary of God. And we're reminded once again of what is true. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. The Lord is with you, church. He holds your right hand. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In this moment of going, like, there's so much good out there. He's brought back to this moment of seeing that the goodness of God is a treasure chest to him. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. I think one of the interesting things in this passage, in verse 15, it, it says, if he would have voiced these things, and I think it's interesting because not only... Uh, did he voice them, but we have them recorded in God's word for all generations to read. And he's like, if I would have said that, if I would have spoken that, 
What does he say in verse 15? I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's interesting that the personal struggles of his life and the personal uh, areas that he's wrestling with, he says, if I would have voiced those, it, it, it would have impacted so many generations. It would have impacted so many people around me. And a lot of times we don't think about that, that our, our sin, our, our fallenness affects so many other people than just ourselves. But in the same way, when we come to a place of gospel clarity, when we come to a place of being reminded what is true, that it affects others as well. That that good news of Jesus is not meant to stay with us, but it's going to spread and to tell of all your works. We're going to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so our hope this morning as we came together, and I'll invite the worship team to come back up and to lead us, and is that this morning would be an opportunity for us to uh, really celebrate that until I came into the sanctuary. Maybe you're walking in this morning, and it's been a, it's been a difficult week. It's been a hard week. And the weight of the week and what you've been shouldering is just too much to bear until I came into the sanctuary. Our prayer, our heart as pastors of Church of the Valley is that there would be a moment where you get to come into the sanctuary of God, that you would meet the nearness of God, that you would meet the goodness of God, and that you would be able to proclaim like Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's our prayer this morning. That's our hope. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward. They're going to be here in the front of the room to pray for you, to encourage you, to pray over you. If there's any prayer need at all, we're just going to have a time of response as we, we kind of begin to, to sing together and declare the goodness. I pray, pray that the words that we sing this morning uh, would just speak goodness over your life. That would be a, a reminder to you of what is true this morning that we would be reminded that he is near to us this morning? Would you receive that? Father, we pray in our next few moments of just response this morning, Lord, that you would encourage us. Lord, that we would be able to say, not just with our head, but with our hearts, the Lord is good. He's good. He's good. Thank you for being at work. Thank you, Lord, that in our doubts, you meet us. In our questions, you meet us. Lord, thank you that even when we stumble and fall, your grace is sufficient. That we can come to you. And Lord, you do not turn away from us. That you're ready to meet us, embrace us. So Lord, may we know that, remember that this morning. Lord, help us to respond this morning to the goodness of of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.